Hello, and welcome to the Religion Media Center podcast. We're an independent organization aiming to help the media report religion and beliefs. Do look at our website for more information religionmediacenter.org.uk. I'm Leo Devine, and this week I'm hosting a conversation on the first anniversary of the war in Ukraine. We've assembled a panel of experts and religious representatives to reflect on this rather grim milestone and ongoing conflict. Thank you for choosing to listen. Hello and welcome to this Religion Media Center briefing with me, Leo Devine, to mark the first anniversary of the war in Ukraine. In just one year, the war has killed 7,200 civilians and injured almost 12,000. Cities have been destroyed, homes, hospitals, ports and infrastructure have all gone. Eight million people have fled as refugees and five million are displaced within the country. Tens of thousands of soldiers on both sides have died since President Putin invaded Ukraine, despite the cries of condemnation from around the world. Well, as we mark this uh, grim anniversary today or this week, there seems to be no let up in the fighting. Even this morning, President Putin showed no signs of backing down in his State of the Nation speech. And in response to all of this, President Zelensky, as we know, is asking the world for more support, and for more weapons, addressing Parliament just a few days ago, he asked for fighter jets to help defend his country. And yesterday, President Biden made a surprise and unprecedented visit to Kyiv to pledge his continued support. And against this backdrop of frightening escalation, um, what we want to do today is to look at how the churches and faith groups, both inside and outside Ukraine, have fared and how they responded and continue to respond to the ongoing crisis and the role that they could play in the future. As you know, Ukraine is mostly a Christian country with an Orthodox Christian majority. However, one of the main outcomes of the war is that the Orthodox Church has split following the recognition of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church as an independent entity uh, by the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople, much to the anger of the Russian Orthodox Church and its leader, Archbishop Krill, an avowed supporter of Putin and the war. We're going to hear a lot more about that. And I should say also that the Catholic Church of Ukraine is also a major influence both at home and in this country, uh, where alongside the Orthodox Church, um, it's transformed its work into welcoming and supporting refugees. So I don't pretend that any of this religious model is, is easy to understand, but that's why we're here at the Religion Media Center to help your understanding with all of this when you report the story. We've got a great panel. We've got Peter Robertson from Christian Aid, who's a senior journalist and humanitarian aid specialist, recently returned from Odessa. We've got Reverend Father Miroslav Pushkaruk, who's an Orthodox priest who is working in this country to establish additional Ukrainian Orthodox parishes in response to growing numbers in the UK. We've got Father Taras Komic, who is a Catholic priest of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. He's also a very senior academic as well in theology. Sergei Chapman from the Orthodox Christian Studies Center at Fordham University in New York, um, who's also a leading academic. And we have Krish Kandia, a prominent evangelical Christian who's run a series of social justice campaigns and set up the Sanctuary Foundation to help resettle Ukrainian refugees. So apologies for the long introduction, but we have got a great panel. It's about understanding, understanding a very complex situation and a terrible war occurring in Ukraine. Peter, from Christian Aid, can I come straight to you? Uh, because you are recently returned from the country, in particular, as I said, from Odessa. From a humanitarian point of view, what is life 
like right now for ordinary people in Ukraine? I think the humanitarian situation in Ukraine from when I was there is a state of flux. There are still people who need help. There are people who are still trying to move out of the country, but also there are many people who are returning to the country. I think looking back over this year since I joined Christian Aid and I've been following the Ukraine story very closely, the first phase I would describe as panic. People were terrified. They didn't know what was going to happen. So many of them fled for the borders. The men were being called up. And then there was this kind of stalemate. And then as the Ukrainians started to take back more territory, some people felt more confident coming back in. There were also husbands who were telling their wives, don't come back because there's no electricity, there's no power, there's no heating. So it's a, it's a complex situation. So just to think of it as one big blob of refugees who have just left the country would be mistaken. Within Ukraine itself, there are many, many what we call internally displaced people, IDPs. So the people from the east of Ukraine who've come, for example, to Odessa and still need a, a lot of support and help. The other thing I would say about this current phase that we're in, it's gone beyond the basics of food and shelter. That, of course, is still important. But many IDPs need psychosocial support. Their children are trying to get into school. And there are incredible scars mentally about how long this has gone on. Everyone is exhausted. They're worried because their family's been separated. They live under the daily threat of being bombed or from struck by missiles. So it's an incredible strain on people. But then to counter that, I would say there are people who I met who have incredible determination, still hope. They are fiercely determined to protect their homeland and they want to continue living as normal life as they can. And you see that manifested in things like having restaurants open, going to bars, trying to make life seem as uh, normal as possible. It isn't, of course, but I think that's the psychology of it, to try and make sure that your life, as much as you can, mirrors what it was like before the war. Working with Christian Aid and other aid agencies, what are the churches playing a big role in helping you in that particular endeavour? The churches are absolutely critical. We, as Christian Aid, were founded back at the end of the Second World War, strangely enough, to help refugees after the collapse of Germany. But since then, our history has been more involved in Africa and trying to deal with extreme poverty, climate change, etc. So the, the war in Ukraine was a real shock to us. How did we pivot to that? But luckily, through our partners and faith groups, we had a ready-made network that we could use. And also, Christian Aid prides itself on trying to go down to the smallest level, the community-led level. So church groups are an ideal set of people whom to operate through. So we try and engage with them, and we ask them what they need. So rather than just saying to them, well, you need blankets, you need water bottles, we ask them what it is they need, they tell us. And sometimes very small sums of money can make a huge difference. So for example, in Odessa, there was a playground, but with no play equipment. So we equipped that thanks to the donations that we've received in the UK from the British public. We have the money to do things like that. So small grants can make a huge difference. 
Okay, Peter, we'll come back to you and feel free to chip in at any point as well during the discussion. But thank you for that, for setting the scene as it is right now. Um, Sergey Chapnin from the Orthodox Study Center in New York, Fordham in New York. Um, it's, it's a complex situation, as I was saying, but it's, it's crucial we understand how the Ukrainian church, how the Orthodox church in general works. Can you just briefly explain to us this kind of split off from the Russian Orthodox church um, and how the Ukrainian church now within Ukraine is operating independently? First of all, we should say that there is a clear religious dimension in this war. And today, Mr. Putin mentioned, I guess, three times different aspects of uh, involvement of religion in this war. And also he mentioned recent liberal developments within the Christian theology in the West, in particular in the Anglican Church. So that means that the church in Ukraine are the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, has to clearly uh, react. I think we understand now that Archbishop Krill, and certainly has been heavily criticised in some quarters for being very much on in the Putin camp, um, is very opposed to what's happening in Ukraine in terms of the Orthodox Church that's been established there in terms of its own identity and break away from the Russian Orthodox Church. That's correct, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Patriarch Kirill pretends uh, to be the leader not only of the Russian church on the territory of Russian Federation, but also on the post-Soviet space. But he's definitely losing his position. The church in Ukraine is not united. Right now we have two churches. One is the historical one that is related to Moscow Patriarchate and to Patriarch Kirill. And there is the second church, which was a schismatic until 2018, later was recognized by the Ecumenical Patriarchate and was granted autocephaly by Patriarch Bartholomew. And the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which is the new autocephalous church, is more national-oriented and you cannot say that it has any Russian sentiments you explain that very well, but we have we actually have Father Taras uh, with us, who is a Ukrainian uh, Catholic priest of that Greek Catholic Church uh, in Ukraine. Uh, he's also a leading theologian, as I said before, at Liverpool Hope University. Um, Father Taras, the Catholic Church is, as as Sergey was saying, there is kind of like the third influential part of this complex e equation. Um, can you explain your role and how you see the situation right now in Ukraine? May I just uh, say a few words about uh, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, uh, explain uh, what uh, what uh, is this church all about. It's um, Greek um, because uh, um, it observes um, a tradition of the um, Eastern Christianity uh, from Greece. And uh, it's Catholic because uh, it's in union with the Catholic Church, with the Pope of Rome and with the uh, whole uh, Catholic world. I think, Father, that's why people find it somewhat confusing when we talk about the Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine. But you've, you've explained it very well. And also, as you say, your spiritual leader is not the Patriarch of Constantinople. Your spiritual leader is actually the Pope. Can I just ask you, in relation to this and the situation in Ukraine right now, is Archbishop Krill, who we mentioned earlier, Sergei explained the situation, leader of the um, Russian Orthodox Church, um, heavily criticised? 
Why do you think the Pope has not been more forthright in criticizing Archbishop Krill, Patriarch Krill? May I make a short remark about the leadership of the church? Um, actually, the formal leader of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church is uh, the major archbishop of uh, Kiev. He was uh, very clearly uh, condemning the uh, invasion of Russia from from the uh, start of the war. The Pope Francis uh, took a slightly different stance, uh, more ambiguous. Uh, I think uh, uh, because of some political reasons, he uh, wants to maintain some um, door open for negotiations with uh, Patriarch Kirill. Uh, but at the same time, he uh, condemns um, very clearly uh, the war uh, as such. Thank you. I know you've done a lot of work also in this country in terms of refugees. And I also want to talk in a moment to Father Miroslav, who is a Ukrainian Orthodox priest. Uh, but let me just bring in, let's just turn to this issue of, of refugees. And certainly after the comments we heard this morning from President Putin, the very fact that the war seems to be endless at the moment, talked about it going on for years. And let me bring in Krish Kandia, who has petitioned the government in this country to increase help for families who took in people um, for six months and now feel perhaps in many instances that they can't do anymore. What do you think we should be doing more, particularly after those comments this morning from Putin? Thank you, everyone. And thanks for your continued uh, interest in Ukraine. It's great to join this call. Um, I think we, we are still in the middle of a really historic response from the British public, of which churches and, and other religious groups have played a really key role. It's over 150,000 Ukrainians that have come here now, um, and most of them, I think it's around 114,000, have come through the Homes for Ukraine scheme. So that's strangers welcoming people into their homes. Um, it's been well over the six months that the government initially asked people to uh, respond to. And yet, uh, we have a, a brand new survey that will go live uh, on Thursday. Over 1,980 Ukrainians have responded to it, which is the largest survey of its kind. Um, it's going really well. Ukrainians are very positive, uh, saying they feel incredibly welcomed and supported. They're very glad to be here. They're very grateful to the UK public. But the big challenges are work. Most Ukrainians haven't found meaningful work here. Um, a lot of the people that have come have been highly skilled, educated, professional people, it's often women coming with children, um, and they either haven't been able to find work at all, or they've had to take a, a kind of a lower level job to the one that they're used to. And that's leading to a lot of um, identity crisis, people feeling, um, you know, just, just, disrespected, I guess, that they're not, um, you know, there might be a lawyer like the lady that lives with me, but she's working as a shop assistant. And, and that kind of disparity between what they're capable of and what they're currently doing is a big deal. The other major issue is the lack of housing. So once people finish being in a hosting situation, there's no housing for them to go to. And that challenge is something that the UK has got, not just for Ukrainians, um, but also for Afghans, you'll know that um, many Afghans 
uh, are still stuck in hotels. Uh, it'll be two years in August that they've been in those hotels. And as you've been seeing on the news, how uh, local residents, many, uh, are responding to those hotels is pretty scary. So lots of Ukrainians are really struggling to get into the private rental sector. So we're calling on the government to help in both of those areas around housing and around um, quicker ways into work. But we don't think the government needs to solve that on their own. In fact, we've got a big summit on Friday where, because it's the anniversary of the war on Friday, we're gathering um, civil society, civil servants, uh, refugees, um, business leaders all together at Christchurch, Oxford uh, for a day, really digging into what went well, what still needs to happen um, and how we can continue to work in this joined up way of helping Ukrainians, Afghans and other refugees that need our assistance. You were saying there that you have a Ukrainian family, is that how I understand it, living with you at the moment? That There have been reports of difficulties where people have, I guess there's never a good word, compassion fatigue. How's, mm. how's it worked out for you? It's true that there is a small minority, and our survey will back this up with the largest survey of its kind, that most hosting, it continues on, um, even though it's been longer than, than people anticipated. Um, but most hosts and most guests are doing very well, a small percentage. It seems like less, um, maybe around 1% of Ukrainians that have come are in that kind of nowhere to go situation, the kind of temporarily homeless situation. Um, for us, it's been really wonderful, actually, that the young lady that came to live with us, uh, she lost both of her parents before the war began, so she was very alone and isolated. And she described, she did a little interview for um, CNN the other week, uh, that she feels like she's almost been adopted into a new family. And for us, you know, I, I call it the power of proximity, uh, you know, each night having dinner with my foster kids, my adopted kids, my wife and um, my new friend from Ukraine. That's what empowers us to keep going to try and change the system because you can see the difference that it makes for those individuals that are receiving uh, hospitality and welcome. The other big thing just to say that we're finding, because all of this incredible welcome is happening at the same time that the government's got this Rwanda scheme and you've got a home secretary that describes immigrants coming here as an invasion. And so we've got this kind of Paradox, paradox going on. And I believe there's more people of goodwill than there are people that are wanting to ban the boats or to uh, support the Rwanda scheme. So um, I want to see more hospitality happens. And as soon as people get access to supporting people like the refugee uh, Ukrainians, it releases even more compassion. So I'm, I'm a believer that we really can see that, that transformation. Rich, that's really good to hear. We'll come back to you in just a second. Peter, very briefly before I move on, do you think we've got more refugees on the way then, given what's happening, what was said this morning? Very hard to predict. As I said, I think at the moment it's people moving back and forth. Um, but no doubt that if there was another huge Russian push and they broke through, then I think we could see uh, more people trying to cross the borders. Um, the agencies are better geared up to that now. Um, but at the moment, we're not seeing anything that suggests the panic that we saw in those first few days. I think people now believe that the Ukrainian forces are much stronger and with um, the help they're getting from the West, they could they can withstand an attack. And also we saw from the missile attacks where Putin targeted all the civilian infrastructure, people stuck with it. They stuck through it. They didn't leave, not in the massive numbers that might he might he that Putin might have expected. Okay, thank you, Peter. Um, and Chris has just put into the chat, actually, that we're struggling nationally for more hosts. So it's it's hard for more refugees to come to the UK unless more hosts actually come forward. 
Father Miroslav, let me come to you. Father, you're a Ukrainian Orthodox priest here in Britain. Um, I know your English is not very good, and we will allow for that. We've actually got a very nice uh, interpreter, which is Natalia. But um, let me just ask you, because a lot of your work, I guess, is, is as a result of the refugees coming here and, and a growing dedication to Orthodox Christianity. Perhaps you could just explain what your role is in this country. His role now is to provide spiritual guidance and support for all Ukrainians that come in now and for Ukrainians that have been living here for a long time. So it's mainly about spiritual support and guidance. Father Taras, can I just ask you then in relation to that, because obviously you're representing um, the Catholics of Ukraine, you yourself are finding that, and you work in the Northwest in Liverpool and, and Manchester. In fact, you were in Salford until recently as a parish priest, I believe. Um, you've seen a, a big influx of um, refugees as well. And I guess that's part of your work is accommodating those people and giving them spiritual, attending to their spiritual needs. I'm based in Liverpool and um, in uh, the city region, uh, there are no um, Ukrainian Orthodox uh, churches. So we work, uh, I work with uh, Christians of different denominations uh, from Ukraine. And uh, obviously I offer pastoral care to them. Um, but uh, we do not limit uh, our activities only to um, spiritual pastoral because people um, who arrived from Ukraine, they have so many different needs. So in addition to uh, church services, we also have some social meetings. We organize different events in order to support uh, all, all those who arrive from Ukraine. I noticed in the chat that Tony Goodger has said that the, the housing issue, which was referred to by Krish, um, has seen Ukrainian families um, finding it very difficult. The six months is up and they have to uproot their lives. They've established and moved to different areas of the country. Uh, he says that where he lives in Rutland, he's hearing of a Ukrainian family who is soon to be temporarily homeless. Is that how you see the situation sometimes, Father Taras? Yes, there are difficulties. There are issues. But again, um, um, many different players, stakeholders um, uh, help us um, as, uh, as Ukrainians, as, as a church, uh, to, to solve all these issues. So if, if there are issues um, which we cannot solve on our own, we direct people in a certain um, direction. Uh. Sergey, can I just ask you now, um, you understand how the Russian Orthodox Church thinks and acts. Um, you actually worked, I believe, for the Patriarchate of Moscow, so you've got a particular understanding of how, how these things play out. What do you think that Archbishop Krill is now thinking? And how will he be advising his buddy, President Vladimir Putin? Well, uh, this is not surprising at all that Peter Kill supported Putin. Uh, he is a part of this authoritarian state, an integral part of the state. And actually, during his 14 years as Patriarch, he used the same model, the authoritarian model, to reorganize the Russian Orthodox Church. And now we see that the vast majority of clergy is silent, 
certain group of bishops and priests are openly supporting the war, and very few are speaking against, and they are under pressure both from the church authorities and state authorities. So the situation is that the Russian Orthodox Church, in its manifestations, is more like a civil religion, post-Soviet civil religion, imperial civil religion, than the Christian church. I'm sorry to say that, but the position that we see uh, from sermons, from wartime sermons, is quite far from the gospel and from traditional theology in the Christian world. Just thinking now to the future, I'll ask all of the guests um, this question, really. Um, Given President Biden's visit to Ukraine yesterday, to President Zelensky's tour of Europe, including the United Kingdom, asking for more weapons, for more resources, for more help. And Putin's um, remarks this morning in his state of um, his state of the nation report. How do you see things progressing now? Do you, do you think this war is going to drag on? This is an extremely difficult question. We don't see any clear way out of that. In his address to the nation, President Putin said that we will continue the denazification of Ukraine. And that means he is on the same positions as he was a year ago when he started the invasion. In a way, I would say for the moment, it's a dead end. The war will continue and there is no desire from the Russian Federation to stop uh, the war, start any kind of negotiations. We have to pray for peace. We have to pray for the victory of Ukraine. But we can't make any kind of clear plans for the nearest future. And of course, this is not the time to speak of the reconciliation right now. Okay. There's a very interesting question in the chat, um, Sergey. I'm going to put it to you first um, from Mike Woodridge, who is former BBC correspondent. He says it would be interesting to hear what is happening in other countries in the region where there are significant Orthodox communities. Are there splits happening there too, and also a kind of a clash of loyalty, if you like? And if so, what is it likely to be or what's likely to be the long-term consequence? And how does the Orthodox family seem to divide between support for continued military action and support for some kind of negotiated solution to the current conflict? So are there other splits in neighbouring regions, would you say, Sergei? Well, I would say that at least those priests and members of the parishes in different regions of Russia, vast majority is uh, against the war. But this is more like a kind of intelligentsia uh, parishes in the big cities. As for the uh, border regions of Russia, they are rather consolidated and they are supporting the uh, Russian military. They are a part of this state-organized charity activities to support Russian military, to support those Ukrainian families, including families of the Ukrainian priests who fled into Russian Federation. There are at least uh, 40 priests and I would say three, four bishops who left Ukraine from these deoccupied territories. And they are on the Russian side now, and they are, I would say, quite anti-Ukrainian. So the situation is extremely complicated. It's not just the Russian propaganda against independent Ukrainian church, 
But while there are different groups, and I would say there are more than two groups within the Ukrainian Orthodox community, there is a desire for reconciliation within the Ukrainian Orthodoxy on the grassroots level. But there are serious problems on the level of the church administration and bishops from both sides how this reconciliation process could took place and what be the model of this reconciliation. Okay, Sergey, thank you very much. And um, Father Taras, just looking, I, I suppose, ahead to a future where there aren't refugees to look after, where some sort of normality comes to the region. Do, do you see that yourself happening anytime soon? What is your view of the very short-term future? I think we can see some... Um, return to normality one year ago everybody even before 24th of february was running away from kiev now many people return back to ukraine return back to kiev and even yesterday president biden came to kiev so i think some sort of normality uh, is returning uh, but uh, it's it's not yet a permanent state, and uh, obviously, with the war, the situation is so dynamic and so unpredictable that we uh, cannot uh, uh, make uh, far-reaching um, predictions about what what will happen in the nearest future. And Krish, let me ask you again, and you, your heartfelt plea really for more people to come forward, certainly while the war continues. And certainly I didn't feel um, cheered up at all by listening to President Putin this morning. Um, do you have a message really now for everybody in the UK and the work that you do, inspired by the work that you do? I want to say it's not too late for people to be part of this historic welcome. Uh, the last time that we had a number like this of strangers coming to live amongst us uh, in our homes was the kinder transport of 1939. And we built bronze statues outside Liverpool Street Station to recognise we did something wonderful. And the UK and, and obviously countries like Poland and Romania and Moldova uh, equally, if not more so, have done an amazing job of welcome. And it's an incredible privilege to be part of it. That The situation now in many parts of Ukraine is much worse than it was at the beginning of the war when people were open to show compassion. Um, and that, that time seems to have moved on. People are less willing uh, to be able to offer that help, but it's needed more than ever. Um, I really believe that the Ukrainians that are here um, they are desperate to go back as soon as it's possible. That's what our survey tells us. Mm. But at the same time, they're throwing themselves into language learning, uh, to getting jobs, and uh, to try to make life good for their children here. So uh, as we've been trying to figure out, you know, what does the future hold? Uh, my plan is always hope for the best. It'd be fantastic if we can support Ukrainians to go home, but plan for the worst. If this is the same kind of situation that we've seen Russia involved in in places like Syria, um, they don't give up easily. They they bomb into annihilation. And so we must be ready to support people for the long term, not just the short haul. Well, um, good luck with all of your work, Krish, and um, I'm sure everybody supports your endeavours in that. Um, let me just try and bring in Father Miroslav. I just wanted to ask him really how he feels that people in the UK could help him. They are uh, searching for uh, for the place, for the venue, for them to 
um, uh, to celebrate um, services. They don't have uh, the venue at this point. Okay, well, Father Taras, thank you for translating. Let me let me go to Peter for maybe a final comment now from Christian Aid. Um, Peter, we started with you because you are very recently returned from the country. Let me get a, a final thought from you, really, on again, once again, hearing the words of Putin this morning, seeing no end in sight. How can we help the aid agencies like Christian Aid and the work that you're doing, not only in this country, but obviously from the work that you're doing in Ukraine itself? Thank you. Well, let's not forget that the British public donated £400 million to the Disasters Emergency Committee, of which Christian Aid is a member. So this has given us a record-breaking sum of money, which again, reflecting what Chris was saying, shows the amazing generosity of the British public and they desire to help. And we've been able to do that. And we've been able to do that because the entire society of Ukraine has been mobilized. So we have been working with what we call accidental humanitarians, people who were dance teachers, IT specialists, and now they're humanitarians. We've enabled them to help their fellow compatriots so that they can look to a better future. Some of these things can be very small gestures. Um, for example, there was one Independent, the uh, IDP that I met who'd come from the east and she was sheltering in Odessa and she had trained as a social worker and her quote was, I was helped and now I can help. So these are people who themselves have suffered but are now putting themselves back into society and helping their own people. So I'm inspired. It's a strange paradox. I'm inspired but I'm also horrified by what I hear and see from people. So these two things are happening at once, but I remain hopeful. I think the world is behind Ukraine. There are obviously many other disasters that happen around the world, um, and this is one of, of many. But there is no doubt I have that Ukrainians want to help themselves, and with the help of the rest of the world, they can do it. Peter, thank you so much. Peter Robertson from Christian Aid. Thank you also to Sergey from uh, the Fordham University in New York. Um, also to Krish as well for talking about refugees in this country, uh, Father Miroslav and also Father Taras in, in the Northwest as well. Thank you to all of you for taking part and thank you for listening and watching to mark this very sad anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Uh, all of today's debate will be available on YouTube and also major podcast platforms as well. And to find out more about the work that we do with the Religion Media Centre, you can visit our website, which is religionmediacentre.org.uk. That's religionmediacentre.org.uk. Thank you so much to everybody. Thank you for listening to the Religion Media Centre podcast. To find out more about us and what we offer, visit our website at religionmediacentre.org.uk. In the meantime, we look forward to welcoming you to our future podcast episodes.